This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week Podcast. Our guest, as usual, Andrew Mercado. Welcome back. Hi there, James. A lot to talk about this. We're testing out a bit of new technology this week, so hopefully it uh, it will come good. It's uh, called Zencaster. I think it should give us a better result than the usual phone call. Now, Andrew, the Emmys, did you sit through it all? Yeah, I did. I was kind of bored this year, though, James. I found it a bit of a chore, actually. Yeah. I, what? I didn't think the host, Stephen Colbert, was great. No, no, I probably I agree just with you thought, there. Yeah, I just thought that he was, I don't know, I, maybe I felt that he needed to go a little bit harder, but I just really didn't think that he delivered enough Zingers, um, I think that he could have been a lot more brutal with his humour about Trump. I mean, it would have played to the room. Um, and I just thought it got off to a kind of a flat start and then I just don't think that it was uh, – I don't think it was funny at all to have Sean Spicer turn up and uh, send himself up exaggerating the amount of people watching the Emmys. I mean – you know, I'm usually a big fan of people who are self-deprecating and can send themselves up, but I just think that Sean Spicer proved himself to be such an idiot as White House press secretary. I just don't think it was funny for him to sort of say, oh, no, I don't work there anymore, and, yeah, I was an idiot. I just went, and mm, actually, I don't think that's really funny. I think his job is really important, and uh, I just really, I was kind of, like with the, they kept cutting to actors in the crowd and Melissa McCarthy and they were just kind of looking with a bemused look on their face like, what the hell is happening? This isn't funny. And it really wasn't. Yeah, yeah I've got to agree with that. And it certainly drew uh, a lot of criticism in the US, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, James Corden's in trouble for kissing him on the lips and all that <laughs> sort of stuff. But, um, I mean, I thought some of the uh, presenters were great. I thought that, you know, it was great to see, uh, Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda doing their uh, nine to five reunion after all this time, and I thought Jane Fonda looked amazing with that hair swish. She doesn't look anywhere near her real age. I thought that was great, and I mean they really had a go at Trump, but it was so perfect the way that they compared him to the Dabney Coleman character they used to work for in that movie. I mean that was brilliant. And it was good to hear them give uh, Dabney Coleman a shout-out too, wasn't it? Yes, it was. That was really, really nice. So, um, look, it was uh, – I, I liked who won at the Emmys this year. I thought, you know, The Handmaid's Tale deserved to win Best Drama. I thought that Big Little Lies deserved to be Best Miniseries. I think that Nicole Kidman, she deserved to win that award in a very, very tough field, and I thought that her speech was was really beautiful. She didn't go up there and go on with any of this nonsense about, oh, I never thought I would win, I don't know what to say, and, oh, I'm, oh I don't. you know, she got up there and she was just confident and mature, and she said all the right things and she acknowledged all the right people and then brought it back to the issue of domestic violence, which was ultimately what Big Little Lies was all about. And uh, I thought that was a really great moment from uh, Australia's Nicole Kidman. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about Stephen Colbert. Are you, are you a fan of his, his show, his own work? Not overly. Um, I mean, I do watch it a little bit. Uh, but I wouldn't say that I'm a regular viewer at all. And I kind of, when I see Tonight Show hosts hosting award shows, I need them to not be Tonight Show hosts. I need them to be um, award show hosts. So I think they're two very different things. And to me, that just felt like Colbert was doing another edition of his uh, late-night chat show. Yeah. I'm not a fan of the sort of musical production numbers. There was a couple of them, but but I get it that some people like that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I thought that the girl from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend who did that song and dance routine to introduce the, the accountants, I thought that was actually really dreadful and didn't show her in a good light at all. I mean, you wouldn't watch that and go, wow, I think I'll watch that show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. I just thought that was a real low point. Um, I liked Colbert uh, sending up um, uh, Westworld and doing that, sitting there as a nude robot. That was funny. Um, I liked RuPaul pretending to be an Emmy. That was funny. 
Um, but yeah, I really uh, struggled with a lot of the ceremony. Yeah, the, it was um, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I sort of um, I didn't have three hours to spare on Monday, so I I got the fast forward out in the evening and um, and went through it. I, I probably fast forwarded more than I watched. Um, yeah. But there was a few good highlights. I mean, even without uh, Game of Thrones, HBO was still the, the dominant network. Um, thanks, of course, to uh, Big Little Lies, yeah? Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, look, it was a really like, – I'm, I'm glad I wasn't asked to fill out an Emmy voting form. I mean, how do you decide who's the best actress between Jessica Lange and Susan Sarandon and Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon? And, I mean, ultimately you give it to Nicole because – her portrayal of that victim of domestic violence was really quite incredible. It, it did have the edge, but, you know, some of those categories were just so tough to pick. Yeah, absolutely. And I was surprised, um, you know, Netflix with all their material only came away with four, but that shows you how, how good the competition is. You know, I thought, I think The Crown only won one. And um, I don't think, did Stranger Things win anything? I'm not sure if it did. Could might have won a technical award. I don't remember, seem to remember winning anything yeah. tonight. But I think the crown winning, that was really overdue there because John Lithgow did not win the Golden Globe earlier this year for playing yeah. Winston Churchill. And I think that was a real oversight. But we always know that the Golden Globes are rubbish and the results <laughs> really don't count for anything. So I'm glad the Emmys finally got that right in terms of Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like you. I really liked uh, Nicole Kidman's speech. I thought it was great. Um, gee, didn't the cast look good? On I think they were the first um, oh. presenters, weren't they, at the very oh. start when they all sort of marched Amazing. out? How good did Shailene Woodley look? She just looked so sexy in that kind of plunging neckline and the way her hair was done. I thought she was smoking hot. Yeah, and it just, just made you realise what a good actor she was because her character was a, a million miles away from that, wasn't it? Totally, absolutely. Yeah, although I think towards the end of the series she showed off, she got sort of glammed up a little bit more, I think, in, for the, um, for the uh, sort of, was it the high school event near the end? Yeah, yeah, well, everyone was dressed up for that high school event, so that was it. But, I mean, you're right, her character was very much kind of damaged goods and um, I thought it was, it was great to see uh, on 10's 5pm news that, um, Angela Bishop was talking to Leanne Moriarty on the red carpet. That was great to see the novelist there, the Australian novelist. And, of course, that, I thought that was a, a great moment when Margaret Atwood, the Canadian novelist, took to the stage uh, for The Handmaid's Tale. That was just, you know, as soon as she walked up, I went, well, that's got to be, her. yeah, amazing. Well, that's one, that was wonderful, wasn't it? Because she's had a pretty low profile, as far as I, I've noticed, that throughout the whole thing, throughout the, um, the, the whole sort of celebration about how successful the TV series was. And isn't it interesting, too? I thought it was great that Elizabeth Moss won her Best Actress Award and she got up and isn't it interesting seeing her in real life and she, she's such a lovely, smiling person, but she <laughs> plays these, you know... You know, the Handmaid's Tale, there was nothing to smile about in that, was there? And in Top of the Lake, China Girl, she's not doing much smiling there. She's so tortured in Top of the Lake. Um, so, you know, I'd like to think that at some point uh, someone will give Elizabeth Moss a role where she can, you know, have the hair out and laugh and be happy and, and show us that side, which clearly um, is her as a real person. Sure, and what about Anne Dowd, who won for a Best Supporting Actress for her role in A Handmaid's Tale, where she plays such a, a badass, doesn't she? Oh, oh, I wanted to hit her through the TV screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, it was good. I mean, it, it was good to see that, uh, that celebration of, um, of TV. Um, gee, John Oliver did well too, two awards, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah, that was great. Look, I just, I think, I really like it. It was nice to have a year without Game of Thrones there so that the field could be open to everybody else because once Game of Thrones heads towards its finale and you'd have to assume with the amount of money they're spending on these battle sequences that it's going to clean up um, at the next Emmys that it's uh, uh, eligible for, right, next year. Yeah, sure, absolutely, absolutely. Um we haven't spoken, have we, I don't think, since the, uh, the Australia's Emmys have been moved to the Gold Coast, either. 
The Gold Coast Logies, yeah. Look, I'm actually glad that they're at the Gold Coast, James. I thought if they're not going to be in Melbourne, they have to – I actually think the Gold Coast and, you know, the Gold Coast loves a kind of a – I don't want to use the word tacky, but, you know, it it does love that sort of – that sort of event and you've got to have the venue for it. It was all very well for, you know, Dubbo and Western Sydney to put their hands up, but like, seriously, where are you going to do it? You can't hold it in a theatre and make people sit there for four hours. It has to be held in a giant ballroom where people can be at the tables and the alcohol can be flowing. Otherwise the people who are there don't have a great time. And I think it becomes torturous to watch on TV. Um, So, you know, it, it, you know, it has to be in this giant, Another casino ballroom, but on the Gold Coast, and I actually think that uh, the Gold Coast will turn it on for them in a huge way. Yeah, it makes a bit of a special weekend, I guess, for people who are going, doesn't it? And then was was Dubbo ever a real possibility? Do you think? Or with all due respect to Dubbo, I, I just it's hard to imagine that um, even if they had a venue, that people would be making that trek out there. Yeah, I, I think it was some really great self promotion on Dubbo's point. <laughs> But, I mean, when Gladys Berejiklian jumped in and said, oh, yeah, we're interested in doing this and I'd like to take to Western Sydney, it was like, oh, my God, I'm so sick of hearing about Western Sydney. You know, if you live in Sydney, you, you know you know the local newspaper, they just, whenever there's an election, they go on and on about Western Sydney like it's the only part of Australia that matters. Um, and honest to God, I mean, where were you going to have the Logies in Western Sydney? And who would want to hop on a plane at the airport and travel all that way out there? It's madness. Yeah, yeah, no, very, very hard to believe. Um, we're in the sort of midst of a bit of uh, fever about The Bachelor. One uh, series is finished, a second one is about to start, and there's even speculation we might get a third. Well, yeah, I know there's, uh, there's a rumour going around that... Uh, Ten are denying it, that, but the word is that they're already filming Bachelor in Paradise with all the rejects from both of the shows at some Fiji Island resort. And, of course, if you've been following American TV controversy recently, there was a major incident in Bachelor in Paradise, this American TV show, where they shut down production. Uh, so, you know, uh, stories abounding about, you know, two participants, man and a woman drunk in a spa and something uh, untoward going on and the show was shut down and they were both taken off the show and then it's back again and it's, um, you know, it's just, I understand why 10 want to do it. Uh, it's a, a great way for them to sort of maximise that franchise. But, oh, look, honestly, James, I'm getting really sick of these, I think that the women on this year's series of The Bachelor this year, I think they were horrid. I think they were all trying to, well, the, well, too many of them, not all of them, too many of them were trying to be the villain so that they could become the Kira this year. In fact, one of them even said in this really sort of poppy eating itself moment, she went, oh, she went, oh that girl's this season's Kira. Seriously? They let that go to air because, you know, Kira, of course, being the kind of mad, nutty villain from last year, she was the one that got the gig on uh, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here, and it's a way to extend your 15 minutes of fame. And I just hate it that bad behaviour on these shows is the way to make yourself a bigger star. I I just really, really have a huge issue with that concept. Yeah, I think uh, Tan are probably pretty happy with the way the... the, um the Bachelor performed this year. I mean, the the numbers weren't spectacular historically, but they were certainly up there and tended very well in the demos. Uh, a lot of a lot of chat and anticipation about Sophie Monk starring in The Bachelorette. Um, I heard her a bit this morning on radio on both uh, Jonesy and Amanda on, and on Kyle and Jackie Owen. Kyle's been off for a couple of days. Dave Hughes has been uh, doing breakfast shows and drive shows for the last couple of days. Wow. But I thought she... I thought she sounded really good, and and she made it sound quite interesting. And uh, even though Jackie O's, you know, pretty friendly with um, with uh, Sophie, she said, "Look, she didn't know what to expect, but she really in, enjoyed that first episode." Yeah, look, I heard her yesterday with um, uh, Carrie Bickmore and Tommy Little uh, on a radio show, and and I agree. I think she's uh, selling the show really well. I, I don't think you could ever accuse Sophie Monk of having tickets on herself. I think she's 
self-deprecating. I think she gets all of that part, you know, of it really right. Um, and, uh, I mean, there are a lot of questions being asked about it all because, I mean, there's so much information out there already, right, about it. I mean, we've seen all the guys now named and in TV Week, and, you know, there's a lot of chat that the majority of them are younger than Sophie and much younger than Sophie. There's only one of them who's older than her. Um, but that's all right. That's a bit of a role reversal. I don't really have a problem with that. But, of course, I mean, how does the information get out so quickly? How can NW already have on the cover of their magazine before an episode's even gone to air pictures of them with their shirts off and saying one of them is a porn actor and one of them is a paid actor? Now, seriously, um, there are some leaks coming out of that, or maybe that's Channel 10 deliberately leaking those details uh, to help with uh, pre-publicity. Yeah, you've got to think there's probably a bit of both, isn't there, that they, uh, it certainly intends interest to sort of get uh, unofficial information out there, and then uh, it's in NW's interest to, to push really hard and get any extra stuff they can. Well, Just you know, there's that. acres and acres of stuff being written about it already. And, I mean, but, you know, I also think, too, it's it's kind of, it feels like, again, we've gone a little bit too far with pre-advanced publicity when Sophie is saying, yes, i found the man of my dream. He's got my back. I reckon I'll be having a baby within a year or so. It's like, whoa, can we have opening night first? <laughs> yeah, I heard her talking about that this morning. She said she's she really has found love, you know, with the show's work to treat, you know. Um, she's found the man of her dreams. She also said she ends up she went in um, telling herself she wouldn't pash, pash on with anyone unless she really, you know, really fell for them. She said she thinks she virtually kissed every date bar one of them. Huh. That'll be interesting. That'll that, that'll make for a good promo every night. Sure, sure. And just on that uh, Bachelor in Paradise, it had a little bit of a checkered history, I think, in the US. It's had four seasons, but ABC ran three seasons over there. I think it got cancelled. Then they recommissioned it after a couple of years' break, and it came back into their schedule. I mean, TV is awash with these sorts of formats in America and the UK. I mean, the UK's got that show X on the Beach, and, you know, they, they love taking, you know, they love getting, you know, people who good look good look look good in bikinis and throw them in the resort and see, you know, instead of a whole bunch of guys going after one girl, you've got a whole bunch of sex mad singles, you know, the, the show almost writes itself, right? And of course they're all desperate for fame. So they'll do anything on these shows to uh, get airtime. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's why I hope that Sophie really has found uh, the bloke in amongst there who would be the catch. And the one that really does have her back because, you know, it's, you know, you know, it's, it, you have to be pretty lucky to go into that type of environment with a whole bunch of blokes, most of whom, let's face it, most of them are there because they want some sort of uh, career in media or, you know, they're looking to make a bit of money down the track with the honeymoon and the wedding and all that. I mean, that's always sort of hanging there in the air, isn't it, with these type of shows? So the fact that you'd actually have someone that really would be quite happy to do all of that with Sophie and uh, not have a pay packet attached to it, I, I really hope that that's the case. Yeah, absolutely. And you could, uh, you just can imagine the um, media feeding frenzy as this, this series goes along. Um, I, I hope that doesn't sort of backfire on the show and put some people off it because it gets so much publicity. But uh, most people say you can't have too much promotion. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens regarding that. There is a lot of publicity out there, James. Like, it, it's massive. Like, she is everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, a, a new show that's been uh, causing a, a bit of chat around the place is The Juice. Now, I know you're very, a bit of a fan of uh, David Simon and George Pelicano's work. Yeah, um, I and this for me is, you know, in terms of uh, basing it on the first episode, and I haven't even had time to watch the second episode yet, this is my, my favourite show that they've ever done. I am really interested in the subject matter. 
I think it's a great idea to, to set a show at the start of the porn industry in Times Square, New York in 1971, but to do it as uh, to show it from the women's point of view and to have all those sort of pimps and prostitutes and to really not shy away from the inherent misogyny in both prostitution and pornography. I think that's a great concept for a show. And then you get actors like Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Franco playing identical twins who are, you know, these really subtle differences in his performance which allows you to tell the two of them apart. I thought the first 90-minute episode was magnificent. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? And I tell you, yeah, look, don't waste any time watching that second one. It's even more eye-popping than the first one, I think. It's it's some amazing stuff in there. And um, Maggie Gyllenhaal is just incredible. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about James Franco playing identical twins it is a bit weird when they when there's those scenes where he's you know he's having a conversation with himself I'm just just not sure about that but I guess it's um and it's very clever how they do it and what about that incredible recreation of uh New York City with all the rubbish and you know this huge city block that they've done I mean you swear you can almost uh smell the the rubbish from the streets and and what we all no, uh, New York City was like in those early days when Times Square really was just a sleaze pit of those old single-screen cinemas, uh, most of which sort of switched to porn and, you know, kind of hit it big with deep throat and had people lined up around the block to get in to see it. Sure, yes. it's uh, It hasn't been drawing big crowds, has it, uh, so far? No. The, uh, no. The, the second... I haven't seen it figure in the top 20 in... Uh, Foxtel's overnight ratings at all, and yet the show that goes before it, Outlander, and admittedly that's in Series 3, that's launched to uh, huge figures, but uh, the juice has got a little bit of uh, catching up to do. Maybe good word of mouth, James. Yeah, well, it'll need to hurry. I think there's only six of them. There might be eight, but there's not a lot of episodes, so yeah, they uh, won't want to waste much time getting that word of mouth out. I can tell you the second episode didn't even make the top 100 for Foxtel shows, which means it had an audience of less than 20,000 people. Wow. So, um, but it, it is the sort of show people would record and catch up later, so maybe that'll, that'll build a, a little bit of interest in it, but it's, um, it's certainly one worth, um, worth catching up with. And, you know, let's face it, James, Treme and The Wire and David Simon shows have never really rated that well but my god people talk about them and spend years and years saying i watched this this was fantastic they're sort of in the long term uh they're good prospects but uh none of them do that well on night one yeah i've I've got to admit to having never watched the wire and um uh, you know the the more i've heard about it the more i think i should get back into it i'll give it a go but uh yeah so that's that's something on my to-do list one day yeah, <laughs> uh, a couple. Now you've noticed a few good things coming to uh, BBC sh- uh, soon. Do you want to run us through some of those? Yeah. So um, on Saturday night they're going to be screening on UK TV uh, a movie called Babs, which is uh, a bit of a biopic on the life of Dame Barbara Windsor, the star of the Carry On movies and EastEnders. It's a very unusual biopic, James. It's one of those sort of ones where, you know, the actress is playing her and she's kind of having imaginary conversations with the ghost of her dead father and flashing back to herself as a young child. And it all sort of takes place in this um, crummy old theatre when she's kind of at the lowest point of her career before she gets cast in EastEnders and she's playing some, you know, horrible low-rent venue out on the end of a pier in some English seaside town. Um, And at one point, Barbara Windsor even plays herself the way she is today. So it's really got to pay attention. And, you know, a lot of the UK critics and fans didn't think it was entirely successful. But look, we've seen so many biopics. I understand why people feel the need to do something different with the genre. Yeah, somebody called, um, is it, uh, now who plays her? Uh, Jamie Winston, I think, is the actress that plays her, and she's been getting some really good reviews for, for her portrayal. Yeah, yeah, look, it's a good, great performance and, uh, you, know, you know, very touching in part. Um, but it's funny, you know, there's actually a much better movie of her life, which um, was on years and years ago, 
like in the late 90s and UK TV screened it back then. It's kind of disappeared and never even probably even been rerun. It was called Core Blimey and it was about the love affair between Sid James and Barbara Windsor during the making of the Carry On films. And that was superb. The actress that was playing Barbara Windsor there, she was so good that at about the, say, 100-minute mark, Barbara Windsor took over the role and I didn't even notice that she had taken over to bring her up to real time. And that was just a fantastic piece of TV. So that's a better one, but, like, I don't know where you'd ever see that. There's no, there's no way to see that, I think. Uh, I'd be watching Babs. If you're a fan of EastEnders or Carry On, you're going to have to watch it. Those Carry On movies don't have much of a life anymore, do they? They very rarely uh, crop up on, on um, television. Yeah, yeah, and particularly some of those great biopics. Um, it's a shame. But now the other show that's beginning um, on BBC First, uh, they're going to screen it on Thursdays, is called The Moore Side, starring Sheridan Smith, uh, who we saw here in Australia playing the lead role in Scylla Black. And I think, was she not also in that um, Mrs Biggs miniseries that they partly filmed here in Australia with Seven? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she was, she was excellent in that. Great actress. Uh, you'll barely recognise her in this. This The Moore side is set in one of those really grim, grim north towns um, and it's about a young girl that goes missing. And I watched the first episode and then the uh, link jam. So I've watched about half an hour of the first episode um, and basically Sheridan Smith plays uh, one of the girls in the neighbourhood who doesn't even wait for the police to... Uh, do their work she just automatically starts uh organizing all of the neighbors and friends into let's look for the girl ourselves and this show was a huge success in the uk james i think it had about 10 million viewers um so this is uh one of those shows that you know i've got i've got to track down and see what happens because apparently it just draws you in yeah, it's just a two-parter, I think, so so watch out for that one. But the one I'm really hanging out for is the second series of Dr. Foster. Yeah, wow. I managed to watch about 20 minutes of it, again, of the, the link. I'm having a bit of a problem with that particular uh, website. I think I might have to start watching them during the day so that there's a better uh, better streaming mechanism to it. But, yeah, um, yeah it was... Uh, it was uh, it was really really fantastic, and it picks up a few years after the end of series one of Doctor Foster, and her son is uh, now living with her, and he's a couple of years older. He's certainly a couple of feet taller, and it's all about the ex husband and the girlfriend that was pregnant to him. They are moving back to town, and they invite everybody round to their house for a high wear back celebration and uh that's about as far as i got before uh it uh stopped streaming but yeah i mean i keep seeing things on websites because it's still going to air in the uk now and i keep seeing things on websites like episode two totally bonkers episode three jaw dropping and i'm like i don't want to read any of this i don't want any um you know plot spoilers i just want to watch this all and uh because you know that first series you and i both we just thought it was fantastic yeah, I think it's, 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 I don't pronounce the name. Suran Jones, I think it is, who plays a yeah, who plays Gemma, the Doctor, and it's just yeah, incredible. And that's yeah, that um, so the husband has stayed. It was quite a young girl, wasn't it, that he um, yeah. had the affair with and ended up staying with. Yeah, and I think she's had the baby, and uh, they're still together. And uh, at at one stage. Uh, Oh, yeah, look, I don't want to give away anything, but, yeah, the, the first confrontation between Dr. Foster and her former husband takes place in a very unusual setting, and uh, some of the things he says to her, you can just see that she walks away and she's really shaken, and we all know that she can uh, become a little bit unstable if you push any of her buttons, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. While we're on the, the topic of uh, things British, I'm really enjoying the second series of Victoria, which oh, is on really? a, you know, which is on at the moment. Yeah, with uh, Jenna Coleman. She, a few people criticised her, didn't think she was the right person to portray Queen Victoria. But I'm I'm just uh, she's I think she's fantastic. She's just such a good actor, and um, this is just a really good, really interesting second season. Wow, and uh, Queen Victoria certainly. Uh 
a lot of portrayals of her going on at the moment. <laughs> Victoria and Abdul now in cinemas with Dame Judy Bench playing uh, the monarch for the second time. Right, yeah, that's on my list too. I, that sounds really interesting. It's, yeah. I've seen a, a few negative um, reviews uh, saying it doesn't really reveal, you know, the England's role in um, as a colonial sort of intruder, if you like, in uh, in in India, yeah. and um, and uh, sort of absolving her of of responsibility for what happened there. Then again, this is always what happens with um, historical biopics. I mean, the movie's called Victoria and Abdul, not what Victoria. Yeah. India, you know, it's about a relationship between her and a Muslim servant. And, you know, the film needs to be about that and not get too caught up in saying, well, of course, you know, they did these hideous things in England and they must pay. I mean, we talked about that critical response to Joanna Lumley uh, on that travelling through India. And they said, oh, you know, she really wasn't truthful about what her forebears did. And it was like, well, does she actually know what her great-grandfather did in, in India and whether or not he mistreated servants or whatever. So, yeah, I, I think you have to, you know, I don't want to see that sort of thing on a travel documentary with Joanna Lumley. I want her to be delightful walking around markets saying this is fabulous. I, you know, the, the, the hard historical stuff should be for a historical documentary that you do that's, that's separate. Yeah, I'm with you. I think if people want to do that stuff, great, and, and there's a market for that, and I'm interested in that too. But for just a travel doco, I think uh, it's what Joanna Lumley delivered. Yeah, yeah. Um, one series that we're nearly at the end of, and it's uh, screening on uh, BBC First, Top of the Lake, China Girl. Now, we've I think five episodes are gone. There's just one left. Yeah. Um, now, I've, I've had a bit of a love-hate with this, I must admit, over the course of it. I, I thought the first episode I loved, the second episode, yes, I was I was still in there big time. I've got to admit, I drifted away a little bit, um, episodes three and four, but then I thought episode five sort of got me back in, so I've been a bit hot and cold on it. Uh, what are your thoughts? Look, uh, I'm with you. I'm watching it every week, and I kind of find it fascinating. I don't believe any of it. I just find it completely ludicrous that, any girls' school would allow a 40-something man to come in and kind of crash a high school prom um, and go around insulting everybody. Like, you know, there's, there's, there's situation after situation that I just go, please, as if. I just think it, I also think it really stretches credibility that Elizabeth Moss is investigating the murder of a dead prostitute and her long-lost daughter is going out with the pimp who had that Asian prostitute in his brothel. I mean, what are the chances of that, James? <laughs> yes, it makes for great drama and all of that. And, and you know, I, I, I kind of, it's nutty and it makes you gasp and all this, but it, it, there's something about it that's, I just really have a problem believing some of the, the drama in it. It's very watchable and I think the performances are good, but I do sit there rolling my eyes going, this is completely unbelievable. Like not even a skerrick of this is believable. I don't believe that Elizabeth Moss as a female cop would be allowed to behave like that in a police force. Um, I don't believe that Gwendolyn Christie character who's having the affair with the boss and keeps breaking down in tears. I mean, it's nutty and it's kind of funny and it, it gives the, the show a, uh, one of those great, I don't know what's going to happen next, but I find the whole thing completely unbelievable. Yeah, I'm with you very much. It sort of edges between fantasy and then at times it wants to be more of a crime drama and it's the two just don't sit that well to me. The characters are all that out there that it's almost Nicole Kidman's uh, character that's the sort of sanest and she's dumped the family, gone off to live with uh, with a woman yeah. and uh, and um, looks half crazy, but she's sort of the, the one sort of most grounded almost, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, look, I know that Jane Campion's trying to say something there maybe about modern parenting because, you know, Nicole Kidman's adopted daughter is allowed to do whatever she wants and that kind of... The other thing about Jane Campion's work, and this kind of runs through all of her work, and, and again, I don't really have a problem with this. You know, we have so many male-dominated shows where it's all about the men. I don't have a problem when women are front and centre, but the men in 
any Jane Campion show, they're either complete and utter saps like you and Leslie is, <laughs> or they're complete horrid male chauvinistic assholes like uh, Christian uh, Devoren is playing from the, the the cops. All the cops are kind of chauvinist, macho yeah. idiots. Everything there isn't a single man in Top of the Lake that isn't loathsome. Mm. Not one. There's not one male hero. There's not one male. You go, well, you and Leslie character, he seems nice enough, but he's clearly a sap and he clearly can be walked over and he's sitting there, you know, in this farce of a marriage where his wife's left him for a lesbian and he just kind of goes along with it because (laughs) he's a sap. I know you could see that uh, his relationship with Elizabeth Moss coming off a mile away, couldn't you? And it, it was yeah. it was sort of awkward viewing when it finally happened. I know. I know. So, but all of Jane Campion's sex scenes are weird like that. They're always awkward and they always have really um, um, unflattering angles of nude bits. The way that you and Leslie kind of crawled over the bed to her, it was like, oh, please, we have to see this. Right, put the camera up a bit. <laughs> I want to chat about a couple of the characterizations and, and what you think. Gwendolyn Christie, it's probably one of the... I just don't, don't know what role she plays, you know. It's just... I don't know. I'm just not convinced. It's um, She's just sort of hanging around in all the scenes. She's not that central to any of them. And I'm. it's just... I just feel it. she just looks a bit awkward. Yeah, very awkward. Well, she's a tall girl, so I think she's meant to be awkward. I think the character's meant to be awkward. But I'm not buying any of the way that she behaves. I I don't buy that she lives across the hall from Elizabeth Moss. I don't buy that she's – well, I kind of buy that she's having the affair with um, Clayton Jacobson, her boss. But, you know, all of that stuff with the pregnancy, it was like, what? What's happening now? It's just so weird. Mm, yeah, then she's smoking and then not smoking, worry about the baby, and then, then she goes into the clinic and freaks out and, you oh, know, and, oh, wow. And she bursts into tears whenever there's a – well, I mean, that's very Twin Peaks, isn't it? That's what Andy used to do in Twin Peaks all the time. Whenever things got really bad, he'd start sobbing. They'd go, now Andy put himself <laughs> together. But, you know, so, but, yeah, it's like Top of the Lake is, is kind of – it's like Twin Peaks but without the humour. Yes, yeah. It's like this really weird, surreal view of Sydney, but there's really nothing to laugh at in it. And I think if there was maybe a bit more comedy, which Jane Campion did so well in films like Sweetie and Holy Smoke, where she took some of the characters and made them really absurd so that you did laugh at them, it sort of breaks it up a bit. The, the fact that she's kind of going for this crime drama and it's also kind of deadly serious, but these characters aren't behaving logically, um, that, that I, f- I find it really uh, off-putting. Yeah. Was there ever a nastier character than Puss, uh, the, oh. <laughs> the bloke who runs the brothel Silk, yeah. Silk, Silk 41? But I think because it makes me think, well, maybe David Densick is doing a, a pretty good job of that in his portrayal because he yeah. really is a person who's just not, very few redeeming features, if any. But, I mean, I don't buy at all that this young girl has been oh. mesmerised by him. Where did she meet him? What, at what point does a young girl who's at a private school decide, I'm going to hang around a brothel and decide that the Asian women in there, that is some form of female empowerment, and I think I'll become a prostitute too. You just go, in your dreams. That is beyond ridiculous. Yeah, and, and, and not only hang around the brothel, but go out and work on the street, you know, go out, okay, yeah, I think I'll do an apprenticeship. Yeah, please, it's ridiculous. <laughs> but I've got to say that episode five, it did sort of tie up a few elements and made me think, well, okay, I'm definitely sticking with this. I want to see how they uh, bring it to a close in the final, the final ep. Well, the last episode does look really exciting with all of that kind of, uh, you know, shootout on Bondi Beach with big crowd scenes, a lot of extras there. I mean, you know, most of the time that whenever they go somewhere, it's kind of deserted. But, you know, there's obviously a big uh, finale coming up. Sure, On sure. a crowded well, beach, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very crowded beach, isn't it? So it'll be interesting yeah. to see how, how they pull that off on a busy day at Bondi. Yes. Um, as one, one series... What, 
you know, winds up. We've had a couple of new new seasons start on the ABC. A couple of Aussie uh, dramas are back, both Dr Blake and Glitch. I wanted to talk first about Dr Blake and it just made me realise how good this show is. The production values are excellent. I think it's equal to or better than many of the, you know, the period dramas that come out of the UK. Yeah, I would agree with you, James, which makes the fact that the ABC don't want to make any more episodes of it even more mystifying. They've got a show that they can sell all around the world and they want to end it. It makes no sense. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that, absolutely. And they've, they've moved it from Friday to Sunday night. It's uh, the, I think... They know it's a crowd puller. They know it's good. They know it's popular. So why do you end it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But it's um, and I watched that first episode. The the attention to detail is just wonderful. It was about a it was a boxing uh, boxing sort of night or a couple of nights boxing events in uh, Ballarat, and just the, the the recreation of all the boxing posters, the recreation of the boxing hall, the ring. They just go into so much detail. It's just very well done. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other series that's come back is Glitch, back for the second season. Now, it's been nearly two years since we had the first, I think, six episodes. It's Patrick, a long, long wait, James. <laughs> that has been, hasn't it? But uh, I think most of the cast seem to be back. Uh, Patrick Brammel's the sort of central figure, the sort of local policeman that's sort of dealing with the, the undead in the local town. Yeah, and uh, you're right, they are all back. and um, But they've also got some really uh, great new actors now as well. You know, they've got Robert Rob Collins there from, you know, who's very busy doing Clever Man and the Wrong Girl. Yep. They've got uh, Luke Arnold there who played Michael Hutchins so well in the In Excess miniseries and has been out of the country making many episodes of Black Sails. Um, so they've got some very uh, handsome new additions to the cast but it does worry me the fact that it's been off air for as long as it has. It do, you do sort of lose a bit of momentum. It's one thing to wait a year. It's another thing to have to wait two years for some sort of resolution. Um, and, uh, yeah, I hope I, – I like the first episode. Um, but, again, the, this is a show that has to be – I think it's really hard for these type of shows because you have to keep the audience – interested in wanting to know more without giving away the central premise, which is why have all these people come back from the dead? Yeah, that, that wasn't touched on a lot. I guess they did refer to it in that, that, that first episode, but it doesn't seem not much has changed in the town, has it, in those not two much years? Not changed, no. I think there was a there was a couple of plot holes you were a bit annoyed about in the first season, if I remember correctly. The, the, the thing that I really need them to explain to me is why people from all of the different eras have come, you know, come right. alive. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going down this track now that there's some sort of pharmaceutical corporation involved. Okay, I can buy that. And clearly there would be some reason as to how they got involved with the deaths of recent people. But the fact that you've got a kind of a, a World War One veteran there and, you know, Roger Corsa, who seems to have been a kind of a, bush ranger type person and then you've got the old irish bloke that's uh you know got the old deed of land that's so old uh the lawyer doesn't even recognize it i mean these are people that have risen from the dead after you know in some cases more than 100 years so why have you had people from all these different eras coming up that's what i need an answer to you can keep some of the other mystery alive but i need that's the part that i'm the most interested in finding out about yeah, well, I'd, I wouldn't hold me breath. I'm not sure if we'll ever get much of a resolution about uh, what it all what it all means. But it's um, yeah, I, I quite quite like it. It's quite enjoyable. It's just again, it's very well done. It's a, it is a sci-fi thing, so I guess you can um, you can sort of throw certain things out the window without having to worry too much about uh, how it came about. And now it feels like everybody's dying and coming back to life. I mean, you've got Emily Barclay as the mother that just gave birth. And they say, we lost her on the table for a minute. You think, oh, yeah, okay, that's not postnatal depression. She's cheating. And then you've got the Rob Collins character that clearly got killed by that explosion on the oil rig but has come back to town and he's acting a bit strange as well. It's all very odd, isn't it? 
No, I haven't been keeping score, but there's probably not going to be many who aren't, uh, who haven't come back at, at some, uh, yes, at some but, stage. But, James, there's more people in the show who've been dead than have been alive right now. The, most oh, of, the, the majority of the cast have all died. Yes, yes. I just wonder if that'll be the, <laughs> the kicker at the end. There's actually everyone in one. Yes, maybe, maybe, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, um, Anything else been down? You've uh, there's been um, you've you've mentioned to me before we started this. You've been seeing lots about the House of Wellness. Yeah, I don't know whether you look. They've been doing these um, full page ads on the back of TV Week for several weeks now, and we're talking about a show that screens at ten a.m. on seven two. And yet they've got this advertising budget that is just crazy. They're getting all this press, all this attention. They're advertising. They've, I'm pretty sure they did a full-page ad in the Sunday Telegraph the day it started. And then this week I picked up the TV week. Not only did it have the full-page uh, ad on the back of the magazine, which can't be cheap, but another two pages inside. I mean, it must be costing them a fortune. Who's behind? You want to talk about pharmaceutical companies? They're involved in something dodgy. Who's footing the bill for the House of Wellness on 7-2? Is it a sponsored infomercial? And whatever sort of advertising budget they've got, they've got money to throw around. And it's interesting because we spoke once on this podcast about that show that was on Channel 9 on a Sunday morning at a similar time. The accountant who was doing that interview show Sure. And if you saw Media Watch this week, Paul Barry kind of got into that and said, you know, the figures have just been released on how much money that he spent promoting himself as a, uh, you know, interviewer and putting his picture on billboards in Times Square and on the sides of Melbourne trams. And it feels to me like this is another case. Who's behind the House of Wellness? And is there some superannuation fund or something that's paying for this huge... Uh, advertising budget for what is a little show that's on at 10am on a Sunday morning on a digital channel. Yeah, I thought you might have been able to join the dots and work it out because uh, you, you probably haven't seen any of the sort of infomercial spots then that running across normal TV, I think with Ed Phillips and Zoe Marshall. Have you noticed any of them? No, I haven't because I don't watch a lot of Channel 7 during the day. You know, I watch... Yeah, uh, or you live. Know, I watch the, yeah. And that's kind of it. So what, those spots are already there and now they've just put them all together in a show? Yeah, well, uh, this will give it away. They actually filmed in a chemist warehouse, uh, Andrew. Oh. There you go. <laughs> warehouse is footing the bill. Thanks for explaining that, James. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Ed and Zoe do a lot of infomercials that run across the, the channel. Uh, there's a radio show on 2GB as well that's all connected in, I think. It um, might be an hour uh, every weekend, I think it is. And, uh, yes, Chemist Warehouse spending up big. Wow. Okay. The House of Wellness Chemist Warehouse. Wow. I can't wait for the episode where they do their um, fragrances by Gina Liano and Andy by Hamish. I mean, that's what uh, Chemist Warehouse are striking me as being best known for these days. Uh, they're, they're fabulous uh, Australian celebrity perfumes. <laughs> and they, they did, there was a, um, a Hamish and Andy did a fragrance too. Andy Lee did. did one. Yeah, and I think it was exclusive to Chemist Warehouse, and I believe it sold out within days. Um, and they, well, I think it has. And in fact, I was listening to Hamish and Andy on the phone yesterday, and they've got this um, actor that's making Mamma Mia 2 who has requested a bottle of it, and they're trying to find somebody, one of their listeners, to going to Croatia on a holiday to get it to the set so that it can be sprayed onto Meryl Streep and Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> <laughs> the radio segment, um, but yeah, it's and it's the reason they need this is um, this. It's somehow it's reached this uh, actor who uh, has tweeted that he wants uh, to wear it. Yeah, it's been a good running gag on their radio show that Andy, of course, uh, didn't want to be involved. He was talked into it by Hamish, said, look, no, you've got to do it. I think it could be well. He gave him a business plan. And now I think the gag is that he's trying to talk him into doing a second batch of them for the uh, <laughs> to, to, to meet the demand out there. Wow. 
Um, so, so tell me, bef before we uh, wrap it up this week, uh, anything coming up that's caught your eye that you, you'd recommend oh, yeah, we watch out for? Yeah, we talked about the worst TV show of the year. <laughs> What's that? Caught my eye all right. In fact, I put it on and watched it. And uh, I've I got to say, when I looked at the programs for next week, and next week, of course, is the start of New South Wales school holidays, and I looked and saw... Four Weddings and a Funeral, 8.30pm on Monday night. And I just went, oh, it must be a non-ratings period. Channel 7 screening a Mission Impossible movie. Channel 9's doing Four Weddings and a Funeral, primetime on Monday night. We must be in non-ratings. So I just didn't check. I just assumed that, that was the case. I then had a look at the show that Channel 7 are premiering on Wednesday night and screening on Thursday night, so two nights a week. And then I watched that show and I went, of course it's a non-ratings period because this is the worst, biggest piece of shit I've seen all year. Of course you'd burn it off in a non-ratings period. So I go on Jonesy and Amanda's breakfast show this week and I go, I have seen the worst TV show of the year. And straight away the lovely Kate Amphlett from Channel 7 sends me a message and says, uh, it's not non-ratings next week. We're actually in ratings. And I went, well, I stand corrected, but... What the hell is it with Cannonball, James? Have you seen it yet? No, and I don't know if I ever will either. It's, um, uh, it's James, just, it's it, it has been sitting on the shelf now for over a year. It is hosted yeah. by two actors who start together in Wonderland, Tim Ross and Ben Mingay, and then Rachel Finch is also there, so they cross to Finchie all the time. And imagine a version of Australian Ninja Warrior that isn't filmed at night but is filmed during the day, which makes it look even more cheap than it already is. <laughs> Imagine a couple of inflatables. Every water slide is it's, – it's basically a – imagine Wet and Wild, the TV show. It's basically people on water slides and they have surf mats, which was very encouraging to me because I used to have a surf mat when I was uh, 12 years old uh, back in the 70s, and it's great to see that they have survived all these years. But basically two contestants, and with the first contestants, they're called the Tats Brothers because they've got tats, and they go, and here's the Tats Brothers, and they go, and say something unintelligible, and then they go to the top and... They get their surf mats and they go down the water slide and Tim Ross and Ben Mingay go, Cannonball! <laughs> and James, that's the show. Mm. And it looks like it's filmed at the at some dirty old lake at the bottom of a golf course. It's just there's about 20 people in the crowd watching. It is seriously the cheapest thing I've seen on Channel 7 in a long time. And I'm I'm really um, sad because I was really hoping to say that Yummy Mummies was the worst show of 2017. But um, Cannonball is far and away the worst primetime show to screen on any Australian network this year. I can't imagine that anything will be cheaper or more horrible than Cannonball. I will note, though, that Channel 7 clearly know it's pretty bad because when I read the official press synopsis of it, they describe it as an amateur sporting contest, and that word amateur is very fitting. You'd, <laughs> I'll ask this question. I know what the answer's going to be. I'll ask it anyway. Do you think there's any chance it could appeal to any of the fans of Australian Ninja Warrior? Not a hope, not a hope in hell. It just you would just look at it and go. Well, the the problem is that you know Mr. and Mrs. General Public are going to think that this is Channel 7's attempt to do an Australian Ninja Warrior on the yeah, cheap, yeah. and that's going to actually make it look worse than it already is. And it actually goes to show you one of the great strengths of Australian Ninja Warrior is that they picked an amazing location, as in Cockatoo Island, with those great sort of cliffs and everything that's there. Those hard rock cliffs they have and they shot it at night so you know it hides uh, a lot of it you, you know to shoot a show like that in broad daylight it just it just looks so cheap james i've, I've not seen anything this cheap on tv for a long time and uh, one of those co-hosts ben mingay i think he played alan bond didn't he in the miniseries was it last year yeah he did and I hope he gets more acting roles because he doesn't have a future as a TV host 
and neither does his sidekick. It's uh, and I bet you the pair of them are hide under the blankets when it goes to air twice a week next week. I'll let you know too, Wednesday and Thursday. Um, but yeah, everyone, please check it out. You're not going to see a worse show on TV all year. Yeah, I think that Bond was filmed last year. Might have even been screened the start of this year. I think I can't. Yeah, I think it was too, actually. Yeah, yeah. I've just got one thing, and uh, and then I'll leave it to you if you want to wrap up with anything else. But just thinking back on those Emmys and um, The Handmaid's Tale, has ever a show been hotter, got a a poorer time slot in Australia? as 10.30 on Wednesday nights. Yeah, craziness, James. Why would you do that? I know they had huge success putting it all on SBS On Demand for people to watch, but... You know, you've got most critics saying this is probably the best show of the year. You've got questions, you know, you've got all the other networks jumping up and down saying, oh, we think SBS have got too much buying power that they bought this show that, let's face it, they never would have even considered in the first place. And so there they are with one of these hot shows on TV that everybody is talking about and they play it at 10.30 on a Wednesday night. I'm with you, James. That's just madness. Yeah, they does, should have waited seem- now when the Emmys were finished because it's all up there on SBS On Demand. They should have been putting it to air next week at 8.30pm saying Emmy Award winning Best Drama of the Year, 8.30pm at night. I mean, they just really dropped the ball on that one. Yeah, they're painted a bit into a corner too. They can't really go and show it again earlier because people are just going, why didn't you do this in the first place? You know, yeah, so. exactly. Really silly. They I, seem I, to be, there seems to be this. Um, there, there seems to be something there that if you put the series available to binge on SBS on demand, which they've been doing with a lot of shows lately, then those shows then get played at eleven thirty p.m. on SBS. So I think they thought, oh well, you know, this isn't. We don't need to throw this away at eleven thirty p.m. like Farang or one of their Icelandic dramas. We'll put it on at ten thirty at night. But that's just ridiculous. But you can't watch a really serious show like that at ten thirty p.m. and pay attention. You know, you're on the nod. Everyone I know who's watching it week by week on SBS is taping it and watching it back later because I can't stay awake. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think the binge boat might have sailed for a lot of people. I think it was a it was a thing for a while. A, I think there's a very small, you know, population of, of binges. There's some people who might binge for particular shows. But um, let me put this to you. If, if any of those binging numbers were ever very huge, we would have heard about them. They would have been boasting. Yeah, I suppose would have been boasting about it, how I well they did. You're absolutely no right. one's ever come out and said, oh, this is how many people binged our shows or downloaded them and stuff like that. I'll tell you what, though, James, I don't know whether you've seen this clip, uh, but it's given me new respect for Jackie Lambie in Parliament, okay. who stood up last Friday and said exactly what I've been saying for ages. She went uh, one nation who are demanding an inquiry into the ABC, and she said, you're all just jealous because they figured out uh, iView and the digital landscape before anybody else did, and now you want to punish them for it, the public broadcaster. And I went, oh, my God, Jackie, you're saying what I've been saying for weeks about this issue. I've always thought that one of the reasons that uh, News Corp is so dead against the ABC at the at the moment and has been for some time, and the same thing happens in the UK, is because they're jealous of the success of iView. And I don't know whether or not you read uh, David Knox's audience inventory on uh, TV Tonight website the other day, right. but when he asked them what their favourite catch-up streaming sites for, it was iView, SBS On Demand, and way down the bottom, 7, 9, and 10. So they are falling way behind in this area. And the fact that the ABC jumped on this when they did and have established themselves as having the uh, most popular uh, streaming service in this country, that is driving commercial broadcasters and commercial media mad because they sat on their asses and did nothing about preparing for the future. End of story. Jackie Lambie said it. I've been saying it for ages too. Now, I sort of half agree with you. I think the gap between SBS and the ABC and the commercial uh, catch-up services is closing. Um, I think I think Nine Now is doing a lot better job than it has in the past, and it's it's not a bad experience now. Seven are shortly to relaunch theirs. It's currently called Project Eight. I think we'll hear it. 
hear a little bit about that at the um, Sevens Upfront at the end of October. So it's about not much over four weeks away. Um, Tens is going to be get a big overhaul. We know when uh, CBS get their hands on it, and when that looks more a lot more certain now than it did than when we last spoke. And I still have some problems with the ABC and the SBS uh, offerings. I, I note when Handmaid's Tale was there, they did they certainly didn't put it near the top of the uh, the SBS on demand. They made you go all the way through it to, to find it, so you got all these other shows on the way down and. Yeah. I have problems with the ABC. They take a lot of their shows off way too quickly, you know. They just, oh, do they? Off, off iView? Yeah. It's just really annoying. I don't know if it means they're just too stingy to pay a rate to keep it up longer, to keep the digital rights, but or they just want to make people go and buy it or something. I'm not sure. But um, the, the I, I must. I agree with you, Jan. I'm seeing a lot of ads on uh, regional TV for Nine now. There's one with Hamish and Andy. And at night, if you watch Channel 9, and I watch Kath and Kim every Tuesday night, nearly every ad break was, now you can take Channel 9, 9 now to bed with you. And it's all these people heading off to the bedroom with their tablet watching, uh, you know, The Block. Um, yeah, they're really, really pushing it now on air. Yeah, and I noticed, like, Channel 10 take um, take uh, episodes of Offspring off really quickly. Um, just, Do they? Right. Yeah, so, so the ABC isn't the only one that's guilty of that. But I know Nine keep the block on there forever, of course, which, uh, which uh, it makes good sense, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Andrew and Ricardo, is that, that it from you then? We done? Yeah, that's it. I've covered absolutely everything, I think. <laughs> Thank you, Jane. Wonderful. Great to catch up with you. And um, if the uh, our little uh, trial of Zencaster works well, uh, we might um, bring it out next time too. Good talking to you, Andrew. We'll speak to you again soon. No worries. Thank you, James. <laughs>